welcome back to the Insightful Thinkers Podcast. Progressivism, a belief in new ideas, modern methods, and change, arises in educational contexts when a crisis happens. The crisis? A discrepancy between the existing educational system and the perceived needs of the system. At this point, when theorists of education or educators realize that the system needs to be changed, they begin to devise new educational ideas. And this is what we're talking about today, the history of the progressivist movement in education and the various philosophies that built on one another to give us the educational system we have today. In some ways, this is a part two to last week's episode, but this one's more on the philosophies of education and how education was built on the backs of these philosophers. Although we did discuss Plato and other philosophers in the history of schooling, but this one, we're not really talking about the development of the institution of the school. We're talking more about the development of the philosophies on how to bring education forward. Sources of this episode were Darling and Norenbo, 2010 Progressivism. This is a chapter in the Blackwell Guide to the Philosophy of Education. And also Thomas, 2021 Education, a very short introduction. We used this last week in the history of schooling. Let's talk about a historical background on the progressive movement. Progressivism did not begin at a specific date, but it crept in during the 19th century and became the most dominant movement in education at the beginning of the 20th. But who planted the seeds for it? It didn't just appear out of nowhere in, in the 19th century. Comenius, we talked about him last week. He lived between 1592 and 1670. So he planted the seeds for progressivism all the way back in the 17th century. He presented one of the first logical and systematic plans for reorganizing the educational system. So that's why you see some overlap here. He, he's, he's an influential person in the history of education. So he's talked about in the history of education and in the history of schooling, like we talked about last week. He advocated gentleness. He said, the teacher should be like the sun, always light and warm, bringing sometimes rain and wind, but rarely lightning and thunder. As mentioned in last week's episode, he championed universal education, so for all ages and, and uh, for females as well, uh, which was revolutionary for the time. Comenius believed the child's nature was to be respected and that it should be left free to unfold and, and, and to grow while the child plays. He wanted to take steps to teach real things or science in the curriculum. Granite, real things back then are not the same as the real ones now due to the progress of the scientific revolution that was only just really beginning in Comenius's time. Either way, he started the push towards teaching kids these real things rather than mystical things. In a way, we have Comenius to thank, for better or for worse, and like it or not, for the instruction of science in schools. It really is unbelievable that he already was pushing for science to be taught, despite science essentially having just been invented in his own lifetime. He somehow knew that this new thing that was science was a way to get at the reality he wanted to teach. He's truly a visionary in this way. 
And I mean, he has to be because the reason anyone's name from that long ago is still appearing in books and in podcast episodes like this one is because of that person's groundbreaking ideas and almost prophetic visions they need. They have to be way ahead of their time and they have to truly be innovators from scratch, from seemingly no prior influence. To be remembered is not only to do what has never been done, but to think what has never been thought. And that's what Comenius did. Um, but despite his, his incredible philosophical thoughts on uh, progressing education forward, it wasn't until a couple hundred years later when the ball really started to get rolling. Rousseau was the one to do this with the 1762 work, Emile, or On Education. In Emile, Rousseau stresses that the educator needs a proper understanding of how a child's nature develops. This knowledge should then be used to consider what the child should be taught. So use the knowledge of how a child's nature develops to uh, shape your teaching. The key question to Rousseau was not what we, well, what I should say like is, what, what Rousseau wanted us to, uh, to focus on in education was not what we think a child should know, but what a child is capable of learning. According to Rousseau, children learn from experience, not from being force-fed facts. They are little scientists. They learn empirically, which means they learn from trial and error or from experience. Their open minds, according to Rousseau, are perfectly suited to learn from experience in the way that adults' hardened and flexible minds are not. This amazing insight uh, is only now just uh, being confirmed by brain research on plasticity that researchers have found that children's brains are more plastic. Uh, it's at a time when you're a child when your brain is... Uh, removing synapses, it's rewiring, it's doing all these things, and it literally is like plastic. It can be shaped a little bit by experience, well, quite a bit by experience, actually. Um, whereas when you're an adult, it's actually the other way around. You're not really, your brain isn't reshaping quite as much. It's, it's quite literally not as flexible, and your thinking is, is less flexible because of it. Rousseau was already thinking about this hundreds of years before we even knew about uh, the function of the brain, let alone features of it like plasticity. This, like Comenius, is just an incredible, true, insightful thinker who is so ahead of his time. He's thinking of ideas that haven't even been confirmed by science. Yeah, Comenius is already implementing science into the curriculum before science has even fully taken shape. These are the visionaries we're talking about today. And uh, definitely worthy of an in-depth analysis today. Rousseau later warns against the shallow assumption that children's thoughts and processes are the same as ours. He says that childhood has its own ways of seeing, thinking, and feeling. Nothing is more foolish than to try and substitute our ways for them. We can't apply our ways that we, we learn to children. We have to figure out how they think because... They have different points of view, so we have to devise new educational methods specifically for the child. This may not sound too groundbreaking because we're, a hundred, we're hundreds of years down the road, but Rousseau's assumption that children think differently than adults, it, it really was groundbreaking at the time. Uh, 
it's di- although it is difficult to appreciate why we even need this idea in the first place because it's so widely accepted it simply wasn't considered before him the very foundation actually of progressive thinking sprang almost entirely from his view of the child as different from the adult but rousseau wasn't without his own influences in rousseau's own time his view of the child as a mini experimenter was in tune with the empirical take on philosophy of the day. Before empiricism, any question was simply answered with, oh, it's in God's will, rather than let's find out the answer. And this let's find out approach, it didn't exist until the empiricist philosophers arose who believed that knowledge could come from experience, from evidence, from trial and error, from experiments. This was the new view, this was the enlightenment view that Rousseau was one of the enlightenment thinkers, but he was actually influenced, his ideas on education uh, of treating children as mini experimenters so that they can gain knowledge from experience actually came from the early empiricists like Locke. So that brings us to John Locke, the most influential of all the empiricist philosophers. He published his book, Some Thoughts Concerning Education, in 1693. This was actually a few decades, even before Rousseau's Emile. Hence, Locke was the one who provided the intellectual foundation for Rousseau's view of the child as an experimenter. We talked about how Rousseau provided the intellectual foundation for the progressivist movement. Well, he his foundation was actually built on Locke's ideas. Locke's genius was in his recognition of the child as being ready to learn by discovering knowledge. According to Locke, the tractable child gains knowledge from experience rather than acquires it from authority or divine authority or knowledge is simply instilled inside of you uh, from God or from or from purely from nature and it's just naturally there it actually comes from experience according to Locke he was one of the first people to think of it in this way uh, think of knowledge in this way this was a really new way of thinking of of how a child learns because according to Locke children's minds are blank slates they are primed for learning from experience because they're blank slates. And now we know that's that's not entirely true. That is a little bit extreme to think they're completely blank, but experience does certainly shape children quite a bit. And that's, it comes back to the nature-nurture thing. Locke thought it was all nurture, and there's no nature there. Everyone is a blank slate. And as Steven Pinker talks about in his incredible book that we actually had a podcast on in the early days, he talks about how... Uh, the blank slate idea, though it can be beneficial in some way, since everyone is on an equal footing, it's not fully true. And Pinker debunks that. But back in that, either way, this was a completely groundbreaking philosophy, and it inspired a lot of people, including Rousseau. So Locke and Rousseau, you could put them together and say that they built the foundations for the progressivist philosophy in education. Now, who built on their ideas? Well, the influence by Emile specifically was Johann Heinrich Pestalozzi. He lived between 1746 and 1827, and he ran several schools and produced many papers on books and education. His idea was that we shouldn't solely produce uh, or, or, or look to uh, or value intellectual attainment 
but we should assist in this self-fulfillment of children's many-sided abilities and, and talents. So, in other words, it's not all about the grades. Now, you may wonder, whatever happened to Pestalozzi's idea? Because it does, school does seem like it's all about the grades these days. And the fact of the matter is that as groundbreaking as a lot of these philosophies are, their practical influence is somewhat sparse. We, even to this day, we haven't applied a lot of these progressive ideas to education. Pestalozzi's, Locke's, uh, Rousseau's. Not all of these philosophies fully translate and, and become applied to education. So this is why you, <laughs> you wonder why we're not following this, well, not ancient, but this, uh, this hundreds of year old advice about not everything being about intellectual attainments. Well, not all of these ideas are picked up in practice. Let's continue with the philosophies, though, and that's what this episode's really for. It's about getting at the ideas, not necessarily the practice within the schools that we talked about last week, but at least what are the ideas about education and how did they develop? And building on Pestalozzi was his student, Friedrich Froebel. He, he started edging things uh, forward in the progressivist movement, too. He wrote The Education of Man in 1826, the year before Pestalozzi's death, he was actually the one who, who coined the term kindergarten, actually. He met, so by this, kindergarten, quite literally, it is like a garden for children. He meant for early education to be like a garden of children where they develop together and grow. He stressed creative activity and play and sought for education to be something that takes place in the entire lifespan as well, from birth to adulthood. We talked a little bit last week how it hasn't always been like this. Uh, then we come to John Dewey and we're going to finish with John Dewey because he's the most influential, he's widely known as the most influential educational philosopher of the 20th century. And we're in the 21st now, so it's yet to be seen who's going to be the uh, foremost philosopher of education in, in this century. So we have to really stop at Dewey. In an echo of Locke, 200 years before, Dewey thought of the child as a scientist too. He said this, he said, The native attitude of childhood, marked by curiosity, fertile imagination, and love of experimental inquiry, is near to the attitude of the scientific mind. The natural children's mind, full of curiosity and brimming with imagination, is just like the scientific mind. So he kind of finds a parallel between life and science. Dewey wanted to replace the prevailing view that knowledge could be uncovered as a definite and permanent truth with a new understanding that knowledge is relative. According to Dewey, the view that the world was eternal and unchangeable was mistaken. So his idea was that the aim of education was to teach children to live and to thrive in an ever-changing world, not a world that is immutable, but one that's always changing. And to do this, he... He sought to teach children in a scientific manner. To Dewey, doing science in school was actually like a microcosm for a child's daily life. He believed there to be no difference between science and day-to-day -day experience because both are problem-solving situations where we continuously reconstruct our experiences to form knowledge. He found these parallels between life and science. So schools under Dewey's philosophy should not just be places where children, or 
rather are not just places where children learn to solve problems of daily life. They're places where life itself is taking place. Now, a knock on Dewey is that his writing is sometimes marred with vagueness, ambiguity, and inconsistency when it comes to actually putting his ideas into practice. So a lot of his work, too, is unfortunately quite theoretical with little regard for being pragmatic and, and finding ways to actually apply his thoughts to the real world. And this is why, as I touched on, these ancient ideas for schooling are, or these ideas for schooling were not always picked up. I mean, it's one thing to have your ideas as a philosopher or a theoretician of education. But it's another thing to have ideas for putting them into practice. And it's another thing still for it actually to be put in practice in, a, in any type of a systematic fashion. So there are a lot of steps between having the idea and putting it into practice. So sometimes things get stuck with the idea, like what happened with Pestalozzi. It's not all, school should not all be all about educational attainment, well, whatever happened to that? Now it just seems like school is all about educational or intellectual uh, attainment. So not all of these old ideas get picked up, no matter how groundbreaking they are. And this is what also happened to Dewey, even though his ideas were as recently as, as uh, the 20th century. The issue of pragmatics and applicability is also present in Rousseau's work too. Uh, one factor that made Rousseau's work not so practical was that he had such little patience with the idea of schools that he actually had no interest in how to practice or implement uh, the art of teaching. So as you may have already guessed, the ideas of the progressives were taken for, were taken only haphazardly and applied in very sporadic ways and in no systematic worldwide fashion. There was never a mass movement for progressive education. Any moves toward a wholesale progressive schooling system were hardly anything more than experimental, really. So progressive movements in education happened in a very disconnected fashion. In any case, these philosophies did certainly inspire at least some educators policymakers and officials who implemented their philosophies in, in the practice of teaching, even if it was in a sporadic way and it wasn't such a, a worldwide systematic uh, thing to put all these uh, progressive education philosophies into practice. Now, even suggesting, though, that anybody really took these ideas to heart and, and put them into practice is not so straightforward because it is difficult to quantify the direct impact of philosophy on practice. Maybe if we had more readily adopted the progressivist philosophies, a straight-A student wouldn't be so concerned with the one bad grade, and the struggling student wouldn't be seen as struggling. Maybe there would be no concept of an A in the first place. Thank you for listening to this episode, everybody. If you liked it, the best thing you can do is share it with someone so we can continue to grow our community through word of mouth. We'll be back next week. As always, you guys, in-depth analysis, diverse set of topics. Take care, everybody.
This podcast is a production of Insightful Thinkers Media.